Good morning, Pillar fam. Uh, today's reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everyone. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, by show of hands, who here has put up their Christmas tree? now. <laughs> Pretty festive group of people. Uh, yeah, we, we did ours before Thanksgiving as well. Um, we're just excited for the season. I'm going to pray, and then we'll go ahead and jump into our new sermon series this morning. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so thankful for you God, we're thankful for your power. We're thankful for your faithfulness. 
God, thank you for being so kind and generous towards us, God. Uh, Lord, help us to understand uh, our great need for you. Help us to understand the fact that we are so undeserving of the kindness that you have shown us. God, like Mary, we are of humble estate. So we ask, Lord, would you uh, look upon us? Would you have mercy? Would you fill us with your spirit? Draw us close to you, God. Help us to trust in you and know you and love you, Father. Help us to worship you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we finished up our sermon series through the book of Kings. Uh, Last week we talked about the exile. The people of Israel went into exile, into Babylon. So this morning uh, we're going to be starting on a sermon series that in which we're going to take a look at some texts, some passages that uh, kind of reflect Mary's perspective on her son, Jesus. I've uh, uncreatively titled this sermon series, The Gospel According to Mary. Um, This should not be confused with the Gospel of Mary, which is a heretical book a false account of Jesus' teaching. Um, This false account was condemned early on in the life of the church, very easily recognized uh, for what it is, uh, false heretical teaching on um, Jesus' life and work. So we're going to be looking at, uh, again, a couple of texts that kind of give us what Jesus' life was like through the lens of Mary. That's what we're we're trying to look at, Jesus through the lens of Mary's experiences. And of course, we can all recognize that that Mary has a unique perspective on Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is her son. And we know, or we can be rather confident that Mary was one of the primary sources for some of the gospel material. So we're in the book of Luke, right? If you Flip back one page just to the beginning of Luke chapter 1. You see in the introduction to the book of Luke in verse 2, you see that Luke uh, got his information from eyewitnesses. He corroborated his account with eyewitnesses uh, so that he could present an orderly narrative and account of Jesus's life and work. And it is very, very likely that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was one of his eyewitnesses that he interviewed. You just take a look at the level of detail that's included in uh, some of the birth narrative, like what we just read this morning, Mary's reactions, her thoughts, her emotions, and her feelings when she was met by the angel, her very intimate experience with her cousin Elizabeth, where the uh, where John the Baptist, as a baby, as an infant, or as a infant in the womb, leaped inside of his, his mother's womb. Right, a very intimate experience that only a couple people would have known about. And keep in mind, Elizabeth was already very old at this point. So by the time that Luke is writing his gospel, you know, there's really only a, a couple people that, that would have known this information, Mary being one of them. We also know that Mary was uh, a part of the community of the early church, the community of the disciples. If you look at John chapter 19, verses 26 to 27, I have it up on the screen. This is at the crucifixion. So Jesus sees his mother, 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John. It's interesting that John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved in his own gospel. But when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So we can assume here that Mary is widowed at this point, and none of her children, none of, none of her other children are believers. So uh, John steps in to take care of Jesus' mother. And man, there's no doubt that John would have asked Mary all kinds of questions about Jesus. And can you imagine the kinds of questions that he would have asked her? All sorts of things. And there are good scholars that uh, suggests that the whole gospel of John has a particular influence uh, exerted on it from Mary, the mother of Jesus. So again, we're trying to look at the life of Jesus through the lens of Mary's experiences because Mary has a unique perspective. Um, You know, no one else had the kind of role that she did in Jesus's childhood years, right? No one else had the same privilege of helping Jesus memorize the scriptures as a boy, right? No one else um, sang him the Psalms as she was lullabying him to sleep. And while as believers, we can all call Jesus our Lord, our Savior, our friend, and we can even call him our older brother, or he is the first among many brothers. We can call him our brother. But only Mary can say that her son died on a cross and three days later rose again. Mary's perspective is valuable, it's important, and the main reason for that is because there's nothing else like the incarnation that communicates Jesus' unique identity. Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. Now, back in the 5th century, uh, early church, there was a heretic named Nestorius, and he wanted to get rid of the phrase, Mary, the mother of God. Instead, he wanted to replace it with Mary, the mother of the Christ. Now, we might think for a second, well, what's the big deal with that? Both, Both are true statements. Mary is the mother of the Christ. But think about what you're saying about Jesus' person when you say that Mary is the mother of God. You're saying that Jesus is fully God. And that like every other human being, he also was born into a family. He had a mother. So the early church condemned Nestorius. Uh, they continue to adopt the language of Mary, the mother of God, and maybe that sounds a little too Catholic for us. We're not comfortable with it. But at the end of the day, what we want to affirm is right here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That is mind-blowing. You have an infinite, eternal, omnipotent God who is born of a woman. 
Now, how on earth can that happen? I don't know. It's a mystery, but it's not our job to explain these mysteries away. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, God sent his son to be born into a fallen human family. Mary wasn't sinless. We don't, that's something I would disagree with the, the Roman Catholic Church on. Mary wasn't sinless. God sent forth his son to be born into a fallen family so that he could ultimately bring anyone who trusted him into his, into his family so that we could all be adopted as sons. Now at the beginning of Luke, as we read, we, we can clearly see that there is an extraordinary God at work through very humble people. Mary is of humble estate. God is at work through humble means. And really, this is the way that God has worked throughout all of redemptive history. You just think about uh, King David, right? Before David was uh, crowned king, before he did all the incredible things that he did, before he, he achieved that status, before he gained that status, he was a humble shepherd. But I think this principle that God uses humble means to do extraordinary things, I think it's most clearly communicated in uh, the examples of women in the Bible. Think about Queen Esther. Right before Esther was a queen, uh, she was really just a, a random Israelite girl living in exile with everyone else. And God sovereignly orchestrated that she would become married to the king and at the right time she stepped in to save her people. Ruth, think about Ruth. Ruth was a pagan. She wasn't even an Israelite. And because of Ruth's faithfulness to her mother-in-law, she is now, we see, uh, highlighted as being in the genealogy of Jesus. She's one of Jesus' descendants. We have all sorts of examples throughout the Old Testament, but one more that I want to highlight. If you guys are familiar with the book of Judges, uh, there's a character named Jael in the book of Judges. Who knows Jael? A couple of you. Well, Jael's claim to fame is that she killed the commander of the Canaanite army with a tent peg, just drove it straight through his head. So pretty cool. Pretty cool thing that she did. I mean, that's like John Wick status right there. But before, before she became a hero, she was, honestly, she was really almost a nobody. The Bible includes a, a few details about her life. Uh, the Bible tells us that she lived on the outskirts of the territory. So she's out in the sticks. And her clan, they dwelled in tents. They were tent dwellers. So uh, she's dwelling in tents, in a tent on the outskirts of the territory. She's not kind of normal like everyone else living in the uh, regular locations, uh, regular areas of population. And the Bible tells us 
that her, her husband's name was Heber. Now that might all seem like, like random information, like some random details. But what the, the author of Judges wants us to understand is that Jael really lived in the equivalent of an Old Testament trailer park, right? She's in a tent on the outskirts of town. The tent, that's the original mobile home. She's on the outskirts of town. And I mean, her husband's name was Heber. Hey, if I'm, I'm not a redneck, but if I were, <laughs> Heber would be like at the top of the names list for my child. I think I might could do that. Did I get that right, Nathan? Did I use that right? <laughs> the point is, we have an extraordinary God at work through humble people. And that is essentially our, our main idea this morning. God has done great things through humble means. And the most incredible example of this is, of course, through Mary. God brought his son into our existence through Mary. So three points that arise from the text. One, great things promised to Mary. Two, great things believed by Mary. And three, great things magnified in Mary. So looking more closely at point number one here. At the beginning of our reading this morning, we see this interaction between uh, the Virgin Mary and the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel opens up the interaction like this. He says, greetings, O favored one. But Mary's response, she's afraid. She's greatly troubled. She's distressed. She's trying to discern, interpret what's going on here. So Gabriel replies, do not fear. Why? For God, for you have found favor with God. So there's like a, a really interesting amount of symmetry in this little interaction right here. So if we go to the next slide, this is how their initial interaction, how we can outline it. All right, opens up with favor. You're the favored one, Mary. She is distressed. Now, why is she distressed? Why is she afraid? Well, there's, of course, some unknown that comes with this announcement. But also think about it like uh, angels aren't like the way that they're depicted in the Bible. They're not like the fat little flying babies that we see in the Valentine's cards. Uh, they're supernatural beings with incredible power, with swords and wings and fire. Right. These are the guys that go toe to toe with Satan's generals like they're intimidating. So she has a response of fear and distress. Gabriel responds, do not fear. Why? Again, because you have found favor with God. So at least what we can draw from Mary's experience here is that the remedy to fear is understanding that you have found favor with God in Jesus Christ. All right, that was the remedy for Mary. Understand that you have found favor with the Lord. So church, something might be distressing you. You might uh, be having some anxiety, anxiety about the situation that you find yourself in. You're trying to interpret what could happen in the future. Well, do not fear. Do not fear the unknown because you are favored 
in Jesus Christ. You're not just tolerated by God in Jesus Christ. You are actively and actually favored by God because of Jesus. Gabriel's announcement, of course, concerns the arrival of Jesus. Mary's going to be given a son. His name will be Jesus. He'll be called Son of the Most High. And then this son will sit on the throne of his father, David. Now, from the, the perspective of these Israelites right here, this would have been just a remarkable statement for them to hear. Because remember, way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, uh, God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and rule over his kingdom forever. So this perfect kingdom, this final kingdom is, is being promised. It's coming into fulfillment right now. We can look at uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 16 on the screen. Or maybe I didn't include that. That's okay. Oh, here we go. God says to David, but my steadfast love will not. That's verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And then there we go. Verse. <laughs> Almost. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This amazing promise is coming into fulfillment right now through the birth of Jesus Christ. And this is so significant because remember where, where we're coming from, right? We just talked about the exile. The people of Israel went away into captivity. And it's basically been the same story since then. They've been ruled over by other nations. There's been no son of David to sit on his throne. For centuries, it has been like this. Just being oppressed and mistreated, no kingdom in sight. For centuries, it's been like this. All hope had seemed, it seemed like it was lost. But God brought restoration through an ordinary Poor, young, humble girl. Church, I think this is really instructive for our lives. Because we all want God to do great things for us. We all want to see God do great things. We all want great things for the people that we love. Right? As parents, we want great things for our kids. We want to see them love the Lord and serve, that, serve the Lord with their whole lives. As husbands, we want to provide the best kind of life we can for our families. As, as singles, I'm sure we all want to find the one and start a family of our own. Maybe not right now, but down the line, I'm sure that is a desire. We all want God to do great things in our lives. But God so often does these wonderful things. He does these extraordinary things through very humble means. So church, don't be discouraged with the day-to-day -day 
mundane tasks that you think might be not making any kind of difference in your life. Don't be discouraged with the daily grind. Don't be discouraged about the the daily fight to have your little kids sit and listen to a story about the Bible. Don't be discouraged when it's hard to talk to your kids about the gospel, but you try anyways. Don't be discouraged when it seems lonely on this island. Don't be discouraged at the fact that you have to go to work day after day, again and again and again, do the same thing over again. Because God uses these little, ordinary, humble things to do extraordinary things. I mean, just think about Jesus, what God has promised us in Jesus Christ. God has promised us nothing less than the fullness of joy and life and blessing in his eternal kingdom, in his presence. The fullness of God's blessings are inherited because of one person, Jesus, who, remember, was born into a poor household. He was born in a manger. He was blue-collar by trade. He was a carpenter. In the Bible, in, in the book of Isaiah, we're even told that he wasn't even very attractive. He was just a very average-looking kind of guy. So many people in Jesus' day missed him when he was standing right there. So many people missed Jesus because they were looking for a grand conqueror to strut into Jerusalem and knock out the Romans. They were looking for a savior that they had defined, a savior that they had crafted to their own liking. Church, don't miss Jesus because you're looking for a savior that you've defined, because you've placed your definition of salvation in in a particular image. God has done great things. God has fulfilled mind-blowing promises by a man who was, by our standards, poor, by a man who was hated by all the important people in his community. God has done great things through his son, who though he being equal with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. In Luke chapter 1, great things are not only promised, but they are also believed. So point number two here. If you look at Luke 1 verse 45, here Elizabeth uh, says of Mary, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth blesses Mary because she trusted that God was one, powerful enough to do what he said, and two, faithful enough to do what he said. I mean, it's really simple, but that is the reason why Elizabeth calls her blessed, because she believed, she trusted that God was powerful and faithful enough to make good on his word. And this is a really important detail as we read the the narrative of Luke, 
Because the promise of Jesus' birth, it comes after the promise of John the Baptist's birth. So just a, a few verses earlier, John the Baptist's father, his name is Zechariah, uh, had a very similar experience. So Zechariah is met by the same angel, the angel Gabriel, and he's given this promise of a child, right? His barren wife, Elizabeth, is going to conceive. In verse 13, uh, we see Zechariah receive this promise. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So really similar experience. And then his response, we see it in verse 18. Uh, if you're following along in your Bible, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is, in, is advanced in years. Now, at face value, this doesn't look too different, uh, especially in the ESV. It doesn't look too different from Mary's response. We see Mary's response in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? So again, at face value, not too much difference there. But there are some key and fundamental differences between Zechariah's response and Mary's response. If, you, if you're looking at the Greek text, uh, verbatim what Zechariah says is, on account of what shall I know this? On account of what will I know this? In other words, he's, it's like he's saying, prove it to me. Uh, the NIV puts it this way, if we have that. We don't have it. Um, but the NIV uh, brings that aspect out very clearly. Zechariah is essentially saying, you need to show me something in order for me to believe this. Prove it to me, Gabriel. And of course, Mary has some questions too. But number one, her questions don't revolve around how she's going to know, as if she's the judge of what can or cannot happen. Right? Her questions actually just revolve around how on earth is this possible? Because Mary knows that if you're going to have a child, she knows that some activity has to take place before that, an activity that she hasn't participated in. So she's like, wow, how is this, how is this even going to happen? What is clear in the narrative is that Zechariah's unbelief was observable, whereas Mary's trust was also observable. Remember, it's the angel Gabriel that rebukes Zechariah. The angel Gabriel is not omnipotent like God. He can't see into people's hearts. Now he may be supernaturally observant, but he's able to see that Zechariah's response communicated unbelief, whereas Mary's communicated trust in the Lord. And here's why this is such a shocking contrast. Zechariah, remember, was a priest. He was in the line of Aaron. Uh, Luke chapter 1 tells us that he was considered righteous. And Luke tells us that just before this, he had the privilege of entering the holy place in the temple. Very rare opportunity, right? Very unlikely thing 
to happen. So for the original audience, if anyone should trust in the Lord, if anyone should get it right, right here, it should be Zechariah, right? He knows the scriptures. He knows what happened with Abraham and Sarah. If anyone should get it right, it should be Zechariah. You see his position, uh, his position in life, his status in life did not equal faith. His outward appearances did not equal faith. You see, it doesn't matter who you are. You never move beyond the simple, uh, the, the fact that you need to simply trust what God has said. So for me, I'm supposed to be like a prof professional Christian. Right? This is supposed, it's like what I am supposed to do for my job and for my livelihood. I'm supposed to be a professional Christian, but I deal with the same sorts of struggles that you do. And like you, I will never move beyond the simple fact that God has called me to trust that he is powerful enough and faithful enough to do exactly what he says. We never move beyond that. No matter who you are, no matter what uh, your outward appearance is, no matter what your position in life is. Mary's position in life was not a hindrance to her faith. Uh, and and for, really, if anyone's going to be hindered by their position in life, it, it should have been Mary. And she was poor. She was young. She came from a small clan in the tribe of, of Judah. You know, we tend to think that God's favor cannot somehow come into our lives because of our situation in life, because of our status in life. You know, we're too messed up, we're too broken, too depressed. Mary's example shows us that uh, no matter who you are, God is calling you to believe in him because he is powerful enough and he is faithful enough to change your life. He's powerful and faithful enough to change your destiny. Mary's trust shows us that God has done great things through humble means. All right, last point. So Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, and upon the conclusion of this visit, she breaks forth into a song of praise, what we know as the Magnificat. If you're looking at the, the titles in your ESV Bible, that's what it says, Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. And let's read this together, verses uh, 46 through 49. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name." Mary was, she understood herself to be a recipient of God's grace. She understood herself to be a recipient of joy and salvation. So from the depth of her soul and her spirit, from the depth of her heart, she praises the Lord. She magnifies the Lord. Mary responded this way because she knew that she was undeserving, 
She says that she is of humble estate. All right, there's, there's no achievement that she's done. There's no position that she has that would make her uh, worthy or deserving of this grace from God. She understands that she is of humble estate. Brothers and sisters, the thing that is going to get in the way of you receiving God's grace, the thing that's going to get in the way of you being a recipient like Mary, is the attitude that you are deserving of something from God, that you're deserving of God's grace. All right, that's just another way of describing self-righteousness when we think God owes us something or that we deserve something from him. Mary magnifies the Lord because she understands herself. She understands what it means to be blessed in relation to God's work. She says that all generations will call her blessed, not because of any inherent strength within her, not because of any sort of accomplishment that she's achieved, No, she says that all generations will call her blessed because she is promised this child from God. Because she got to enjoy the most intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. She got to be his mother. Her blessedness had nothing to do with her looking to herself or to her own achievements or to her own strength, but it had everything to do with God's promise and God fulfilling his promise in providing this child. This is so contrary to the culture that we live in. Basically every Disney movie has a scene, you know, towards the beginning where the main character uh, is empowered to do what they're supposed to do because they look inwardly to find the strength and the power within them to really find who they are and do what they love. That's not where we're going to find blessedness, by looking internally, by looking at ourselves. The only way we're going to find blessedness is in Jesus Christ, only in the promised Son. Mary magnifies the Lord because she understands who she is and because she understands who God is. Look at how she speaks regarding the implications of her pregnancy. Remember, she's pregnant at this time. Look at how she speaks about God's work uh, in bringing her this child. Verses 51 through 54, we can read this together. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now, let's just take a look at the verbs that are included in these statements. Shown, scattered, brought, exalted, filled, sent, helped. Now, maybe some of us have come from the sticks like Heber did, but I'm sure we can all see a similarity between all of these verbs. What's the similarity? Past tense. 
something that God has done. She understands, Mary understands that God is so powerful and so faithful that even though she's at the beginning of God fulfilling his promise, these things are as good as done. He has helped his servant Israel. He has scattered the proud. He has filled the poor. It's done. Because, God, uh, because Mary knows who God is, she can look at his promise and see that this is as good as done. Mary could be so confident of salvation that she speaks in the past tense. Why? Because of the life that God had put inside of her womb. All right, think about it from her perspective. She's pregnant at this point, and God had put divine life inside of her. For Mary, God's fulfillment of his promises was about the arrival of her child, more than anything else. For Mary, God's fulfillment of his promises was about the arrival of a son, a person. Church, salvation is inherently relational. It is, the gospel is an announcement about a person. It's not an announcement about what we may do to be saved. It is the announcement about a person. Because God brought a person into our lives. He brought a divine person into our world. Salvation was accomplished. I think everyone wants salvation in, in some sense. Right? No one wants to go to hell. Everyone wants e eternity in paradise. But the real question isn't, do you want hell or do you want heaven? The real question is, do you want Jesus? Salvation, the gospel, is about a person. Sometimes we can think of the gospel as a, like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Right? Yay, I don't have to go to hell anymore because uh, I prayed this prayer. Maybe some of you can relate to this, but the first time I heard the gospel message... If you want to call it that, it, it basically went something like this. Hell is hot. Forever is a really long time. Do you want some Jesus in your life? That is not the gospel. That's just a transaction. That's just entirely transactional. God, you give me your finished work, and I'll raise my hand. I'll come to the altar. I'll pray this prayer. You know, as amazing as it is to be able to go to heaven, as amazing and fundamental as that is to our understanding of what God provides for us, Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, shows us that before the gospel was about any benefits we received, it was about the gift of a child, a person, a life, the very... God's very own divine life breaking into our dismal, painful human reality. I mean, think about it again from uh, where we're at historically in the book of Luke. Think about the historical context. 
It's all been bad up to this point. For centuries, it's just been bad news. They've been oppressed. They've been mistreated. They've been abused. They've been poor. They've been threatened. It's just sucked for them. It's been terrible. For hundreds of years, it's been bad, bad, bad. And what does God give us? What's his answer to the problem? A person. Himself. God has given us himself in Jesus Christ. And maybe that makes our brain, brains hurt. Because God is one, and yet he is three. But Jesus, we must confess, because the scriptures teach it, is fully divine and fully human. He's not partially divine. He's not partially human. He is God and he is man. In Jesus Christ, the fullness of God and an authentic human nature are indivisibly united in one person. The gospel is not about how we can live our best lives now. It's not about how we can perform miracles. The gospel is not repentance. The gospel is not even justification. The gospel is not how we get out of hell, and it's not even about how we get into heaven. The gospel is about a person, a son who has been given unto us. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for the great things that you have done on our behalf. Lord, we are undeserving. We are of humble estate, God. Lord, would you help us to come to you? Would you draw us close to yourself and receive the mercy that you so freely offer in your son, Jesus Christ? Lord, thank you for the amazing person, the amazing divine and human person that you have sent into the world to redeem us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.